the Americans decided that Florida would make a better launch site than Texas, and the crew of three men embarked on their mission. A 242-hour journey to the moon and back, propelled by state-of-the-art equipment called the Columbiad. Upon their return, the crew safely splashed down in the Pacific Ocean for retrieval by the USS Susquehanna. It was a phenomenal feat of scientific ingenuity, especially considering the year was 1865. Of course, this saga did not unfold in real life, but within the pages of Jules Verne's work of early science fiction, From the Earth to the Moon. He didn't get all the details right. For instance, his craft was launched by a giant planetary gun rather than a self-propelled rocket. But considering Verne wrote the book a full century before the real moon landing, his predictions were eerily accurate. He even estimated the weight of the spacecraft and the cost of the project within about 20% of the actual figures. Part of the reason is because Verne performed exhaustive research using the most accurate information available at the time. And that is almost certainly why his characters employed an amazing new material in the construction of their spacecraft. Cast iron, it was clear, would be far too heavy to fly. What is to be done, then, said Elphinstone with a puzzled air. Employ another metal other than iron. Copper, said Morgan. No, that would be too heavy. I have better than that to offer. What, then, asked the Major. Aluminium, replied Barbicane. Aluminium, cried his three colleagues in chorus. Unquestionably, my friends, this valuable metal possesses the whiteness of silver, the indestructibility of gold, the tenacity of iron, the fusibility of copper, the lightness of glass. It is easily wrought, is very widely distributed, forming the base of most of the rocks, and is three times lighter than iron, and seems to have been created for the express purpose of furnishing us with the material for our projectile. Everything Verne wrote in that passage is true. And that's why when NASA was building vehicles for the Apollo mission, they also turned to aluminum. In fact, just about the only thing Verne didn't predict was the impassioned transatlantic debate surrounding the exact spelling of Element 13. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we're quibbling over aluminium, or aluminum. Many people find they have a strong emotional reaction to hearing one of those two words, so I apologize for ruffling any feathers. It's an understandable reaction. You spend your whole life wrapping leftovers in aluminum foil, or cooking soup in an aluminium pot, and then some pompous jerk comes along and tells you, no, that's wrong. Of course it's spelled the opposite way. How on earth could you be so unforgivably stupid? 
of course, there is no better place to turn for pedantic disagreement than the internet. The talk page for Wikipedia's article on aluminium is a particularly rich archive of a debate that extends back well over a decade, cataloging more than 45,000 words of passionate opinion on the spelling alone. For reference, that's about the length of The Great Gatsby, and features even more characters motivated by spite. Let's enjoy some actual quotes from that page, like this typical start to the argument by some anonymous contributor. This article's title is misspelled. It should be aluminum. That's a strong lead. Feigned ignorance of the opposition's very existence. Another anonymous editor offers this exemplary rejoinder. I, on behalf of the billion-strong population of India, hereby vote aluminium. Yay, democracy wins! Well, it's hard to argue with democracy. While their ardor certainly comes across, our interlocutors here have failed to explain their logic, leaving speculation up to us. Perhaps the periodic table itself can provide context. If you throw a dart at the periodic table, you're likely to hit something that ends in I-U-M. A majority of the elements have this suffix, most of them metals, but also a couple nonmetals like helium and selenium. In fact, all of the elements in aluminium's group end in IUM. Uh, well, except for the one right above it, boron. But boron is a metalloid, so that's okay. But it's not like this suffix is consistent among metals. There's iron, nickel, and cobalt, for instance. Granted, these have been known since antiquity, so they've inherited their names from a pre-chemistry era. But metals like tantalum and molybdenum actually share aluminum's plain U-M suffix, and nobody's arguing for tantalium or molybdenum, so the argument for consistency is looking weak. Perhaps there's some historical context that can inform our debate. Let's check back in with our Wikipedia friends to see what they have to say. The guy who isolated it settled on aluminum, therefore it is aluminum, and prissy pants editors who think they know better should keep their extra eye to themselves. <sighs> oh boy. Presumably, this contributor is talking about Humphrey Davy, since Davy originally suggested the name Alumium before deciding that aluminum was a better name. But there are a couple problems with that idea. First of all, Davy didn't isolate aluminum. He tried, but failed, as his fry-it-with-electricity method worked better with elements on the left side of the periodic table than the right side. The honor goes to either Hans Christian Orsted or Friedrich Wohler. Records are unclear who really succeeded first. It's also not clear that Davy actually settled on aluminum. An anonymous British chemist criticized the name, saying, Aluminium, for we shall take the liberty of writing the word in preference to aluminum, which has a less classical sound. This appears to have been pretty convincing to a lot of British chemists, including possibly Davy himself. Notes from an 1811 lecture indicate that he might have used both names interchangeably. But more importantly, this is not logically consistent ground to stand on. 
Davy also proposed the names silicium, magnium, and glucium for silicon, magnesium, and beryllium, respectively. Many of the elements have had several different names over the years, so unless we're prepared to overhaul the entire periodic table, the authorial intent approach is no help at all. Later history is similarly fruitless. While the rest of the world latched on to aluminium pretty quickly, Americans have gone back and forth with aluminum for years. The IUM suffix was actually more popular in the US until Charles Martin Hall invented a process that made element 13 cheap and accessible for anyone. While documenting his process for the patent office, Hall universally called the metal aluminium. But when advertising to the public, that second eye mysteriously disappeared. That might have actually been a typo at first, but Hall ran with it. Aluminum has a certain ring to it that might remind the buying public of another valuable metal. Platinum. Even though Hall was almost single-handedly responsible for crashing the aluminum market, he was happy to retain the image of opulence. So that gives us one grumpy letter to the editor, and one very successful advertising campaign. Either of those seems like a shaky leg to stand on. But it seems a whole lot better than whatever's happening with our Wikipedians. For the most part, they seem less interested in pursuing these nuances of history than definitively winning the debate. One commenter writes, I've probably got more degrees than you anyway, winky face with the tongue sticking out. Another has peered so deeply into their own navel that they've become quite lost inside of it, asking, what is English? Another collaborator decides that the time has come for more extreme measures. I won't restate any of the arguments listed above as they clearly fall on deaf ears. Instead, I will vote in the only meaningful way I can. I refuse to donate to Wikipedia until aluminum is recognized as the proper spelling. Around this point, some people plaintively cry for peace. User Grammar's Lil Helper calls the conversation a war between brothers, and Spawn Man offers a desperate plea. This dispute over the spilling of things is getting out of hand. We should just accept that not everyone is going to say everything or spill everything the same. Honestly, if we spent half our time working on the dead ends and stubs on this site, this site would be better than ever before. But that's just my opinion. P.S. While I didn't find your comment about Adolf Hitler offensive, just highly irrelevant to the topic. Sadly, this sensible reply went unheard before some other rabble-rouser chimed in, and the whole thing started all over again. This vexing situation is exactly why the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry exists. This is a matter concerning chemistry, but it is impossible to decide by any scientific method. In a case like this, their word is the last word. And while our overlords reign supreme, they're not unreasonable. For the past 25 years, the IUPAC has listed aluminium as the standard international name for element 13. 
and noted that aluminum is a perfectly acceptable variant. An American scientist writing scientific papers might want to use aluminum for consistency's sake, but no one is going to chemistry jail for saying aluminum. Clarity is important to ensure effective communication between individuals. But taken to an extreme, correct English becomes about something else. Especially when those corrections happen in public. Those belligerent pedants who would have the gutters run red with ink are almost always trying to assert their cultural or intellectual superiority over a person, often while avoiding the substance of whatever that person said. We saw this a lot on Aluminium's talk page, but it pops up everywhere. If someone says, The candy factory was decimated by the bubblegum explosion, most people will say, What a tragedy, or that's so sad, or We have a candy factory? But there will always be one person who says, Oh, really? The bubblegum explosion reduced the candy factory by 10%? Because that's what it means to decimate something. Look it up. <laughs> if the point of your language is to communicate an idea clearly to another individual, then just call Element 13 by whatever name comes to you most naturally. There is no doubt that you will be understood. But if you're trying to convey a smug sense of superiority, end the conversation, and out yourself as the most intolerable person in the room, by all means, keep up the good fight. We'll probably never be rid of those folks who just can't resist a pointless argument. So it seems fitting that there exists a landmark attraction built by people who despised each other, and stands in adamant celebration of discord, gridlock, and resentful compromise. It's made of mismatched stones, was abandoned halfway through construction, and is unavoidably phallic. It's unfortunate for its namesake, but there really is no better memorial to polemics than the Washington Monument. As a young country, America fought hard for legitimacy in the world's eyes. In part, that meant trying to imitate the aesthetics of ancient civilizations that were already held in high esteem. That meant monuments. George Washington was an obvious choice. Plans to memorialize the first president of the United States began while the man was still alive, even before he was actually elected president. Historical Egypt was very trendy at the time, so the first proposal, put forth in the 1790s, was an enormous pyramid that would house murals and statues honoring Washington, and possibly even hold his remains, just as a pharaoh would have been entombed. Though presumably there was no plan to mummify him. As president, Washington decided not to spend public funds on a memorial to himself, so the idea didn't really get off the ground until 1832. It was the centennial year of Washington's birth, and the absence of any kind of memorial was starting to look downright inappropriate. Congress tackled the problem head-on, commissioning Horatio Greeno to build a statue of Washington. 
What he created was, to put it mildly, unexpected. Named Enthroned Washington, the marble sculpture portrays George Washington as a shirtless titan, ensconced on an elaborate throne with his right hand pointing toward the heavens. It was not received well. Onlookers joked that Washington was trying to reach for his clothes. It only stood in the Capitol Rotunda for a couple years before it was relocated to the East Lawn, then again outside the U.S. Patent Office, before finally being locked away in the Smithsonian, where you can still see it today. A private foundation gave it another go in 1836, raising money and holding a contest seeking new, more appropriate designs. Robert Mills was the winning architect, with a design that featured a 600-foot-tall obelisk surrounded by 30 enormous stone columns in the style of an ancient Greek temple. That would house statues of founding fathers, with the structure crowned by a statue of George Washington himself driving a horse-drawn chariot. The cornerstone was laid on July 4, 1848, with a celebration that drew a crowd of thousands. Speaker of the House Robert Winthrop gave a two-hour speech, and encased in the cornerstone were copies of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, all the coins then in circulation, and several contemporary newspapers. The Washington National Monument Society tried to keep costs down by accepting stones donated by corporations, professional organizations, and foreign countries. This was all well and good until the society accepted a stone donated by Pope Pius IX. At the time, there was a political party called the Know-Nothings, and they were vociferously anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic. In protest, the Know-Nothings stole the stone donated by the Pope, threw it into the Potomac River, then took over the Washington National Monument Society through a series of fraudulent elections to ensure that the landmark would stay American for Americans. Congress collectively held its head in its hands and withdrew support for the project. For 20 years, the obelisk sat half-built on the Mall, a monument to nothing but failure. By 1876, the centennial of the country's founding, Congress once again grew embarrassed enough to try to finish the project handing the responsibility off to the Army Corps of Engineers. So much time had passed, however, that the original quarry had run dry. New marble had to be mined from not one but two quarries, neither of which held stones that looked quite like the original, nor each other. Even today, a close look at the Washington Monument will reveal three distinct colors of stone, just different enough to look rather sloppy. Congress also realized that they probably didn't have enough money in the bank to complete the monument in all of its originally intended glory. Constructing the colonnade would simply cost too much, and besides, the soft, wet ground probably couldn't support a structure that massive. It was in everyone's best interests to just finish the obelisk and be done with the whole thing. The Washington Monument would finally be completed in 1885. Despite not quite living up to its planned grandeur, at 555 feet tall, it still managed to be the tallest structure in the world, until the completion of the Eiffel Tower five years later. 
And at the very top of the American obelisk sits a 9-inch tall, 100-ounce pyramidion of pure aluminum. At the time, aluminum was a pretty expensive material, similar to gold or silver in price. But it wasn't chosen because of its prestige. The Army Corps of Engineers wanted to top the monument with a metal that would serve as a lightning rod, possibly copper or bronze, or platinum-plated brass. One of the craftsmen working on the project, a man named William Frischmuth, suggested aluminum instead. It's highly conductive to electricity, and its silvery stainless color would look good atop the mostly white monument. Coincidentally, he said he could get the job done for about $75. He had no trouble delivering the goods, though it was quite an accomplishment. At the time, it was the largest single piece of cast aluminum ever created. Frischmuth was so pleased that he put the block on display at Tiffany's in New York City for two days before delivering it to his client. Placed on the floor, visitors were encouraged to step over the little pyramid so they could tell their friends they had jumped clear over the top of the Washington Monument. Back in DC, Colonel Thomas Casey was beginning to get impatient and asked Frischmuth to kindly get on with things. Frischmuth complied and sent along the aluminum block accompanied by a bill for $256.10. In 2018 dollars, that's roughly akin to quoting a client a price of $1,800 and then actually charging well over $6,000. Casey was furious. That same day, he dispatched his assistant to investigate the discrepancy, but either Frischmuth came by the price honestly or Casey was just a terrible negotiator because, in the end, he paid a final price of $225. Either way, Frischmuth lucked out with the timing because, within four years, Charles Martin Hall and Frenchman Paul Hérault had each independently discovered and patented the process that would send the price of aluminum plummeting from $15 a pound to $0.18 cents a pound. The Washington Monument is a must-see for anyone interested in the uniquely American twisted history of this upright structure. But for those who are more interested in Washington the man, maybe skip the monument and visit the museum at Mount Vernon instead. The hall Erul process made metallic aluminum incredibly cheap, but that process still requires an incredible amount of energy. That's why there's such a widespread public effort to recycle aluminum whenever possible. Recycling only requires about 5% as much electricity as it takes to extract new aluminum from the earth. Regardless of the entire periodic table, Element 13 is probably the one you're most likely to come across in pure form as litter in the street, whether or not you're trying to add it to your element collection. So aside from aluminum foil and soda cans, how might an element enthusiast add number 13 to their collection? There's no shortage of consumer products made out of aluminum. 
It's a rare material that has the ability to appear very cheap, like for disposable warming pans, but also very expensive, like in the bodies of premium laptop computers. Anyone who shaves or has a cat would do themselves a favor by purchasing a block of alum, which is both the etymological origin of Element 13's name, however you pronounce it, and also has a borderline miraculous ability to stop small nicks and cuts from bleeding almost immediately. People have known about this property since at least the time of Dioscorides, an author who, like Pliny the Elder and Georgius Agricola, literally wrote the book on his preferred subject. De Materia Medica was a landmark text on the subject of medicine that was studied for over a thousand years, only supplanted by herbalism books during the European Renaissance. Of course, alum is a compound. Technically speaking, it's potassium aluminum sulfate. For the discerning collector, I think there's no better sample of aluminum on earth than the Japanese one yen coin. The basic unit of Japanese money, the one yen coin is struck out of pure aluminum, and satisfyingly, it weighs precisely one gram. If you're careful, you can even lay it on top of water without breaking the surface tension. But if you're interested, you should try to grab one quickly. One yen is approximately equal to one US cent, and much like the penny, the one yen coin is expensive to produce and not very useful in modern society. Many Japanese people have a soft spot for the one yen coin, but it's not clear if the government will continue minting them for long. But that's an argument we can save for another time. Thanks for listening to the episodic table of elements. Music is by Kai Engel. To see what else the Washington Monument could have looked like and have a laugh at Washington enthroned, visit episodictable.com al. Next time, we'll process information about silicon. This is T.R. Appleton reminding you that when spelling words in English, it's I before E, except after C, or when sounded like A as in freighter or way. Or when sounded like I, either zeitgeist or height, and when wishing a feisty geisha, gesundheit. Or when sounded like E as in seize the sheik's reindeer, a task to perform at your leisure or leisure. Seeing words come from French, it's more academic. A counterfeit ancient cuneiform relic will give any speller a pain in the keister. Albeit, French words almost always sound fancier. And lest we forget the time a financier surveilling a proximal sovereign glacier, dressed up like a poltergeist, ambushed his neighbors, and forced them to forfeit their eight heirloom heifers. I know you'll agree if you're Keith, Neil, or Sheila, or gaze at the stars up in Cassiopeia, partake in abseiling or dancing capera, or happen to like a fine glass of Madeira, that we, in good conscience, should start a campaign. Our species abolish this heinous rule's reign. Exceptions abound, there's no disagreeing. So right here and now, I'm firmly decreeing. The old policies should not be revered. There's no rhyme or reason, it's all very weird. Of course, problem being, once done with our yelling, inefficiently needing to memorize spelling.